all these squad leaders that are out there. They're 18, 19, 20 year old entrepreneurs. They're like entrepreneurs in the battlefield. They're solving problems that nobody could ever really imagine with limited resources. You're listening to Hawk Talk, a podcast all about the origin stories of the most interesting people in the world. Today, you know our guests as famous athletes, authors, and entrepreneurs, but there's so much more to this story. Let's get into today's interview with your host, Eric Huber. All right, you're listening to Hawk Talk. I'm here today with Jake Wood. How are you? I'm doing well, man. Good to see you again. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. Thanks for coming on. So got to take it from the top. I assume you were born, you came out, you started organizing the delivery room, making sure there was nothing going wrong, getting things together, started going triaging the hospital, etc. Like that's where it all started, right? yeah actually my dad liked to tell the story that the first time he saw me i peed on my own face so i'm not quite sure that's how (laughs) how it all started (laughs) perfect yeah and it's yeah i think everyone just assumes that you're born that's it this is how it starts you you obviously were born with this but nope you you most people come out peeing on their own face (laughs) exactly exactly so yeah so take me back where are you from originally yeah, so I, I kind of grew up all over the place. My my dad worked uh, in for a big manufacturing conglomerate, and so we were moving around every couple of years to different factories across the Midwest. And you know, I ended up spending most of my time in Iowa, and so I, I'm proud to call Iowa my home. I went off out of state to the University of Wisconsin for college, and have called Southern California my home for the better part of the last two decades. Nice. You moved around a lot all over the Midwest, and. How was that growing up? How was, and how, what age range were you when you were jumping around? Yeah. I mean, I, we moved, uh, first time when I was two, we moved again at six later at eight. And then I think I ended up in Iowa around 12. Yeah. I think it was good for me. I, you know, I, it taught me how to, you know, be outgoing, meet new people, you know, make new friends. I think that has paid dividends, but you know, it, it was all kind of the basic town, you know, same town, no matter where we were, whether it was Texas, Illinois, Iowa, Nebraska, like it was all, you know, meat eating, uh, you know, <laughs> corn on the cob, middle America. And, and I loved it. I loved every minute of where I grew up. Nice. And so, you know, there was not really a point where you're like, why are we jumping around a lot? Because I always like this with kids, like you kind of know what you're introduced to. So for you, it was probably normal, huh? Yeah, I don't think, you know, it wasn't hard on me. It was a little bit harder on my sisters. Okay. You know, I think it's always a little bit harder to, you know, be a girl at the new school than to, you know, be a guy. I, I was always in sports. So I was plugging into sports teams and yeah. making friends that way. But, you know, I never, I don't think I ever paused and said, hey, dad, why are we doing this? I was still young enough where I didn't really have like best friends that I was felt like I was getting ripped, ripped away from. Now, when I got to high school, if he had tried to move me in the middle of high school, I'd uh, said, dad, you know, you pack your things. I'm staying here. (laughs) (laughs) And so you said you were into sports growing up, like which sports were you into? Yeah, I mean, I played most all of them. I played, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I really wanted to be a baseball player when I was growing up. I did that for as long as I could until I realized I wasn't any good at it. <laughs> you know, same thing with basketball. Ended up being pretty good at football. Mm-hmm. Played that all through high school and, and played that in college too. Nice. And so was there a dream of going to the NFL? Was that part of your passion? Like you thought that was the path you were going to take? Yeah, that was definitely the dream. I And, you know, I ended up at the University of Wisconsin because it's it's the absolute best program in the country for the position that I played. And, uh-huh. you know, I played offensive line. It's a factory for sending guys to the NFL. And I, I knew that would be 
you know, that could either work in my favor or work against me. Obviously, I was going to have to compete against the best just to get win a starting spot. And I never quite broke that starting lineup. You know, I, the guy who was recruited a few years after me ended up going to the NFL and played for 13 seasons and made 13 straight Pro Bowls. So that tells wow. you the type yeah. of competition I was up against. Who was that? A guy named Joe Thomas. He played his whole career with uh, the Cleveland Browns. Nice. And... And so was there a point where you're like, maybe this isn't going to work out for me? Like, or were you all like, you know, walk me through that sort of thinking of how, when that seeped in or it, did it ever, or was it more of a conscious choice of, I'm not going to go for it before it ever felt like. <laughs> <laughs> no, that choice tends to get made for you. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I definitely showed up on campus wanting to compete. I was fairly highly recruited. So I don't think anybody would have thought it was crazy for me to be dreaming it uh-huh. you know one of my first varsity practices i was going against an all-american defensive tackle and he literally ripped my shoulder out of its socket oh. and that ended my freshman year and then you know subsequent years I, I just continued to battle injuries it was it was tough and i i would say by my junior year i was still competing for a starting spot but i knew i was not going to make the nfl got it and during that period i mean you it sounds like i mean high school where you fully committed you were the guy working out all the time like all that mattered was football or was it always, did it come naturally? Like tell me kind of the work first natural ability that came into this. Oh man. I mean, beyond being six foot six, none of it was natural. Yeah. I, you know, I, I overcame even talent deficits by just working my ass off both in the weight room and studying film and trying to be the smartest player on the field. And, you know, I just, then I saw guys that had this raw talent that was just mind bending in its capability. And every once in a while you'd see a guy who had that raw talent and the work ethic. And it was yep. just, you know, it was game over. Yep. Got it. And so you put all this work in, you get to that point, you've been planning on going to the NFL. You said around junior year, it's not happening. What happened? I mean, at that point, what, what are you thinking? What's going through your head? Yeah. I mean, I, I started to think about what was next and I was, I was really practical about it. I, I had, you know, done well in school. I'd focused on that. I wanted to make sure that I had options and you know, I'd done some internships, but nothing I was really excited about. And you know, at the same time, our, the country was already at war in Iraq and Afghanistan. I, I'd always thought about joining the military throughout my life. It was something I thought I would do. Where did that come from, too? You know, I think I'd always been uh, fascinated by it. I, I had moments when I was uh, a young kid. You know, I often tell a story about one of the places I lived when I was young, going back to jumping around a bunch, um, was in Austria. And, you know, so visited a lot of... Um, sites related to World War II. Both my grandfather served. I went to a Nazi concentration camp at a, a young age and I saw, you know, just how powerful it was that these, you know, these American soldiers had come across the Atlantic to to liberate, you know, those people. And and so had always kind of had that in the back of my mind. Had always kind of had a sense of adventure. And so ended up, you know, enlisting in the Marine Corps after after I graduated and after I played my last game. How was your family about it? Obviously, they'd been supporting you, it seems like, throughout the football career. When you said you wanted to join the Marine Corps, were they like gung-ho, go for it? That's awesome. Oh, my God. No, <laughs> my mother broke down in tears. Wasn't sure she would ever speak to me again. My dad was, I don't think, surprised, but, you know, he was terrified. Yeah. And this is 2005, so this is, like, the wars are both really bad at this point in time. And so... And I was joining the infantry, so it's not like I was going in to be, you know, a supply clerk or, you know, a JAG officer or something like that. I I said, hey, I want to go go fight. And that's a really dumb thing to say when you're 22 years old. But 
still what I said. And so how was that? Was that everything you thought it would be as you had this idea in your head growing up? You joined, you, you know, went to basic training, et cetera. Did you, were you expecting what they threw at you or were you like, whoa, what did I just do? I mean, I think, I think that it was mostly what I expected. You know, I think maybe, maybe you have this, this sense in your head that you're going to be more like uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and, (laughs) you know, Sylvester Stallone. But yeah, I mean, the training was hard. The, you know, I got stationed in Southern California, went to the School of Infantry after boot camp. It was quickly in Iraq. I mean, like, listen, they weren't letting guys sit around and twiddle their thumbs at that point in time. They were, they were pushing guys through and off to war. And so I joined a unit, got sent over during the surge. It's a really bloody tour. Came back, went to sniper school, which was, you know, really intense and challenging and was fortunate enough to graduate. It's got like a you know, 70% failure rate at the school. Wow. So it's very lucky. And what, what's tough about sniper school? Is it being a good sniper? Is it all the things that go around it? Yeah, I mean, most people think that you probably fail because you can't shoot. But the truth is you can teach anybody to shoot, you know, mm-hmm. with a high degree of accuracy. I, I think what they're really screening people for is a level of maturity and judgment. And they they test maturity and judgment by putting you in the most stressful, uh, high stakes environments imaginable. And they see how do you make decisions and how do you comport yourself? So that means a ton of physical exertion, sleep deprivation, food deprivation, and a lot of complex tasks, you know, with pretty serious consequences for getting them wrong. And, you know, the guys that can keep a a level head and, you know, in the midst of that tend to do all right. You know, there's still a lot of ways that you can fail on the skill side, but it's mostly about maturity and judgment. So we'll get, we'll obviously go through the story, but I'm curious because I've heard different things from different friends that have been uh, served in the military, which was more stressful that and training or being in Iraq or entrepreneurship and building a business, which have you found more <laughs> stressful? I, I mean, they're so different, yeah. but cer- certainly having been in those military environments, both training and combat prepared me to be an entrepreneur, yeah. you know, just, you know, how do you analyze, assess and accept risk? How do you, again, keep your head uh, about you when others are losing theirs? Um, how do you see around the corner uh, for those unimaginable scenarios that can be catastrophic and plan against them. I, I think all of those things played well. I think there's kind of this misconception that soldiers or Marines are just kind of robots that know how to follow orders. And the reality is that, you know, the battlefield of today is so complex, yeah. so fluid, changing so rapidly that, you know, like really all these squad leaders that are out there, they're 18, 19, 20 year old entrepreneurs. They're like entrepreneurs in the battlefield. They're solving problems that nobody could ever really imagine with limited resources, you know? So. No, that makes sense. All right. So you, you go to sniper school and how long, how many times did you serve overseas? Did two tours overseas, um, Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at the conclusion of that second tour in Afghanistan, I just realized that, you know, there were a couple of things happening. I had a bunch of football injuries that were catching up to me. And two, you know, truth be told, both my tours were really, you know, lost a bunch of guys and, you know, they were pretty, you know, high stress yeah. to say the least. And so just made the decision that I didn't want that to really define who I was. And I didn't want to slide, you know, into that zone of being a guy that would deploy eight or nine or 10 times. It's just not who I wanted to be. We need those guys. I have a lot of those yep. friends. It's just not the life I wanted. And so it was time for me to get out and did you have a like a something pulling you out or was it really like time to get out then I'll figure it out like where was your decision on that yeah I think I think it was more uh the realization that I did not want war to consume me right so it was less I didn't like have an opportunity that I was running towards I didn't have a job offer it was hey I don't want this to be who I am for Mm -hmm. the rest of my life 
So I've got to just get out and figure it out. And I'd always wanted to be an entrepreneur, always wanted to do something you know, like that, work for myself, build something. But I also knew that despite having this undergraduate business degree, which we all kind of know is bullshit. <laughs> I have one too, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, four years in, in Iraq and Afghanistan certainly like hadn't padded my resume to fly up to Silicon Valley right. at the end of that tour and get a job. And so I decided I'd probably just go get an MBA and, you know, take some time, build a network mm -hmm. and make myself a little bit more marketable. Oh, by the way, the, you know, the Lehman Brothers just crashed while all this is happening. So it's not like the market's strong anyway. That was the year so, I got out with my, you know, highly worthwhile four-year degree from University of Arizona. So I get it. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Nice. And so you, you decided to go get your MBA? Well, so I started that process. I, I yeah. took my GMAT. I, I got back from Afghanistan. I studied for two weeks, yeah. took the GMAT, nice. scored really well, and start, started to apply. And... I got a rejection letter from Stanford in January and a couple of days later, the Haiti earthquake happens. And that's really what kind of sets me on the path that I've been on for the last decade is I wake up one morning, I'm still pretty pissed that I didn't get into Stanford and I see this earthquake unfolding in Haiti. It's this massive humanitarian catastrophe, hundred thousand people dead overnight. You know, another 150,000 people would die in the next couple of weeks. And I'm literally just back from Afghanistan. And I, and I think to myself like, man, I could, I could, I know how to work in that environment. And so I call a couple of organizations, ask them if I can help. And they all said, you know, hey, leave it to the pros. And if you fast forward to today, like I get it. Like I was just, who, who was I calling these people up, telling them how much they needed me? <laughs> but, you know, at the time I didn't want to take no for an answer. So that's when we pulled together this team of, of other veterans and doctors. And we went down to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, Got there a couple of days after the earthquake. We started running these medical triage. Just clinics. to be clear, there yeah. you saw this on TV the day of, let's say, and literally within two days mm -hmm. you're there. Within three or four days, three or four we're four there. Days. Wow. You know, we raise we raise some money, we get some supplies, we make our way how? down. First, like, how did how did you even raise money? Like, where where did that all come from? Yeah, I mean, we we went. On, I went on Facebook and I said, "Hey, I'm, I'm thinking about going to Haiti. If if you're, I mean, there was this outpouring of support, yeah. right? So everybody's opening their wallets, and I was just saying, like, hey, if you're going to support something, like, and you know me, yeah. I'm going to get down there. I'll do good work. I'll tell you what we do. Nice. And I still had some equipment for my time in the Marine Corps, yeah. you know. So anyway, we get to we go to the Dominican Republic because the airport in Port-au-Prince is shut down. We make our way across the border over land. It's a whole story. It could take you know an hour, and we start helping these people. And it was crazy. This whole thing just snowballed. It kind of went you know viral, as viral as things went back in 2010. And we ended up raising a bunch of money. And, and at the conclusion of this response effort, which went on for about three weeks, we decided like, hey, like this is kind of a good idea. Let's use veterans to do disaster response. And nobody was doing it. Nobody had thought about it. In fact, there was kind of this disconnect between the military community and the humanitarian community for some longstanding reasons. And it was just kind of this, in in our terms now, product market fit that we'd stumbled <laughs> upon. And uh, we decided to to come home and start building uh, an NGO to, to fill that need, meet that, you know, meet the need there. And so early on, what was the focus? Were you focused on, you know, international biggest catastrophes in the world or more domestically? Like where, where were you looking to help? Yeah. I mean, again, another one of those entrepreneurial lessons. At, at first, we thought that what we would do is is take only elite former special operations guys and only send them to developing world countries in the aftermath of massive catastrophes. And we did for, you know, for a year, we did that. We sent people to Pakistan after floods, South Sudan amidst a civil crisis there, Burma, a tsunami in South America. 
and what we were learning was like this was not a scalable model mm-hmm. we 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 couldn't fund against it. It, it these disasters were too unpredictable so you couldn't build out like programmatic and strategic efforts to meet them and then you know in about 15 months in we responded to our first domestic disaster in a non-medical capacity and which one was and that? that's it was a, a tornado in Tuscaloosa Alabama mm-hmm. massive massive tornado 2011 and we didn't know what we were going to do. We just showed up and we're like, we're going to figure it out on the fly. And that's where it dawned on, you know, the team that, that the pathway to scale for the organization was responding in a non-medical capacity to all these disasters that were happening across the U.S. And I'm telling you, if you're not in the disaster game, you don't really have a sense for how many of these disasters are happening yeah. across just the, the country. I mean, it's hundreds of disasters a year. Maybe a half dozen make the front page of the New York Times, and those are the ones we think about. But yeah. this, you know, there was this cadence of catastrophes that were happening, which allowed us to build this muscle memory, establish you know standard operating procedures, repeatable, scalable, scalable processes. And was it all funded through donation the whole time? All funded by philanthropy. So we wow. so we had to build you know a whole digital marketing strategy, you know, kind of an e-commerce play, getting people to to donate on the on the website, retarget them when you know the next disaster hit go out and yeah. build out strategic partnerships with major corporate brands. And it was a slog. Again, we're building this thing yeah. in, the, in the shadow of the Great Recession. I mean, people weren't cutting big checks to philanthropy. Right. And was there, I mean, what at the peak of when you were operating, like how many disasters were you guys showing up to a year? You say there's hundreds a year happening in the U.S., but how many were you able to take on? Yeah. Uh, so last year in 2021, I think the organization responded to over 250 disasters. Wow. And, and we still now we, we are doing more global work again because we've scaled mm-hmm. to a point where we can support that level of effort. And we're raising about 50 to 55 million dollars annually to support it. So on that note, does that come from people that are just committing for a decade of donation? And like, how do you how do you rely on 55, 60 million dollars as a nonprofit coming in every year? And know that it's going to come in. A lot of stress and coffee, man. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, so the revenue mix was really interesting. Um, you know, most nonprofits get the bulk of their revenue from one of two sources, either earned income, like they're actually charging you for their services, or yeah. through major gifts of, of individual donors, right? And a major gift, everybody defines it differently. It could be ten or $25,000 per uh-huh. check. We built ours through two different revenue sources. One, big corporate sponsorships, which of course, you know, didn't start out that big, but by the end could be, you know, $10 million sponsorship deals, um, sometimes multi-year. And then a lot of grassroots donors. So we built out a pretty sophisticated, you know, digital campaign targeting, you know, potential donors nationwide. And so it was an interesting mix for us, but yeah, every year you're starting at zero. Right. And when you're not selling a product and you can't predict when these events are going to happen, it makes it really challenging. So you've got to craft this narrative of, you know, 365 day a year value proposition. We're making communities stronger. We're making them more resilient. We'll be there when you need us. So invest in advance in the services that we provide. And we were able to claw our way to success doing that. Well, it sounds like, I mean, the way you guys can improvise is really impressive, but I'm curious what has, what was the craziest situation you found the team in throughout the past decade of doing this? I mean, besides COVID, (laughs) I mean, I mean, even COVID as an example. I mean, COVID was crazy. We we had done infectious disease work uh, previously in international um, scenarios, but you know, no, none of us, nobody had a playbook for COVID nineteen, right? But mm-hmm. early on, 
know, I took my executive team together and, you know, we, like everybody else, we didn't know what the hell was going on, but we, we knew we had an incredible team. We knew we could adapt. And we said, listen, you know, we've got $27 million in the bank right now. We have, the stock market has just crashed 20%. We have no yeah. idea what's going to happen next. But I'll tell you what we're not going to do. We're not going to just fucking sit on our asses and, and wait for this. You know, we're going to figure out a way to how, to how to get into this fight, whether it bankrupts us or not. Like, this is the moment that you, you exist yeah. for. And so we, we reorganized our entire infrastructure, you know, into five or six task forces focused on how we could safely but swiftly get our people into the fight against COVID, like within days. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, what did that look like? It looked like, you know, we, we were the, the sole NGO managing the collection and distribution of PPE for the city of Chicago, like 50 million pounds of PPE. We were responsible for the homeless COVID shelter for the citizens of Las Vegas, Nevada. We ran all, no, I shouldn't say all, we assisted with the management of all of the medical um, providing, uh, provisioning in Navajo Nation. We treated 15,000 wow. patients in Navajo Nation. And how big is the team? Or do you spin up and down depending on the disaster, so to speak? Yeah, so we have about 150,000 registered volunteers and, a, and about 200 full-time staffers. So we, okay. we spin teams up and down by you know, disaster type and, and mm -hmm. location. And then duration. I mean, we ended up we ended up building out a temporary contract workforce of about 500 during COVID because we needed sustainability across all of these different sites. But these are things that we've yeah. never done before. Like we're building playbooks on the fly when we're doing this stuff. But I think that's that's what's amazing about the organization you created is you built a team of people that knew how to work on the fly and improvise and not just work off a series of processes that were developed by some management team. Oh, we had. I mean, we and and we've built a reputation for being able to do that. You, you know, when the when Kabul fell in Afghanistan late last mm -hmm. year, you know, I was already working on Groundswell. Um, so I'm still involved with Team Rubicon, but it, as chairman, so I'm not involved day to day. I look down at my phone, middle of the day, I'm getting a call, you know, from the Pentagon. And wow. you, you, like, you don't have these numbers saved in your phone, but you recognize like the, the yeah. Pentagon number. They're all kind of, they start the same six digits. Fuck. So, you know, some assistant secretaries calling me like, Hey, we, we have, we're gonna have 25, 50, 75,000 Afghans coming to the U S we have no idea how to support that transition. What can team Rubicon do? Get a call from the white house, you know, six hours later from their office of public engagement, asking the same question, you know, we're in over our heads. What can team Rubicon do? It's like, and Holy shit, man. Yeah. Like, We've built a reputation for solving yeah. complex problems at this point. And I was going to say, even though it's obviously surrounding something that was pretty awful, there's got to be a little bit of pride in that, that you're the phone call the White House and the Pentagon were making directly. Yeah, it, you know, there is, a, there is a lot of pride. I think, you know, so many people have put so much effort into building this organization and they've done it for the right reasons. You know, we, we served our country once. We want to continue to serve our country because service is a part of who we are. And, you know, we see bad things happening and we're not going to stand on the sidelines. I think it's just an ethos that that we've built and one that, you know, frankly, I'm proud of. And so you, you actually mentioned it. So you've done this for a decade. What moved you to actually decide to move to chairman and start working on something else? Was it a passion, like an idea that you couldn't avoid or was it time for you to move? Which one was, you know, was it more of a push or pull? I think it was. I came to the realization that, you know, like my term of enlistment was over, right? You know, I'd, I'd done it for 12 years. I'd built this incredible executive team. I had a succession plan um, and a great guy ready to take over. And I was ready to be an entrepreneur again. You know, yeah. I just, I had that itch to go zero to one again. And I didn't have an idea. 
but I knew that unless I actually pulled the trigger and, to, and communicated to the team my intent to leave, that I was never going to give myself like the time and space to figure out what the idea would be. Mm-hmm. So I did that a little over a year ago and like literally not even four weeks later had the idea for Groundswell and, you know, took myself a couple of months to make sure it was the right idea. And then, you know, just started sprinting. And so obviously I know, but what is Groundswell? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, it's funny because one of the things that I was always concerned about was trying to find an idea to start for a new company that would have as much meaning and impact as team Rubicon had. And Mm -hmm. I was always scared that that wouldn't, I wouldn't have that, you know, came up with this idea for Groundswell, which is uh, a platform we're building to democratize philanthropy for the masses. The, The basic premise is, you know, the ultra wealthy have all of these incredible tools available to them to conduct their philanthropy. They have private foundations, administrative staff, uh, advisors, technical advisors on complex issues, you know, incredible tax vehicles. And like the rest of us Joes don't have that. And, you know, I felt with all of the incredible advances in fintech over the last decade, there's no reason why that should be the case. So we're building that out. I think we have an incredible go-to-market strategy packaging this as a corporate benefit. So giving companies the opportunity to provide each of their employees with a donor advised fund, which kind of is the nucleus of what we build. And then using charitable giving as a form of compensation, you know, as a as part of their approach to attracting and retaining values aligned talent. So is it similar to four hundred one k matching, but for a charitable donation, where it's like the company can match and help you, but you also get the write off for it? Yeah, so it's 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 similar to a four hundred one k. I think we're we will have a matching component. Uh, we're really pushing companies to adopt a a straight gifting policy, which means. Oh. You know, so hey, your base might be a hundred thousand. It's ten percent bonus, but we're also going to give you five thousand dollars a year to give to charity, free and clear of a match. That's cool. Which, yeah. which interestingly, is something you're starting to see in four hundred one ks, where companies in this desperate war for talent are saying, "Hey, we'll just give you six percent into your your four hundred one k, not even match it. Yeah. Like we're just going to give it to you because we need you." It's pretty remarkable. Yeah. No, it's it's a crazy time in that sense, but no, but I like it because I think. Most, I don't know if it's most, I don't have a statistics on this, but a lot of companies do want to donate and don't, including my own, we like don't necessarily have a, an infrastructure that they can get. There's always more benefits than just donating. Right. Like, are we donating to the, the causes that matter to our employees who are helping us earn that money that we're donating? Or is it just driven by me, the CEO saying, Hey, I like this cause. So I'm going to put our money into right. that. So it's super interesting in that sense, which and I like. That's the way it's always been done. And I know because I raised yeah. money from a lot of CEOs like you over yeah. the years. And it never really kind of moved the needle for the employees in the way that the CEOs want. Yep. Agreed. No, it gets a lot more goodwill when you get they get to actually choose where that goes. And we've seen it because we do uh, a lot of initiatives where we do matching mm-hmm. and even that little extension but systematizing that, building something around it is, you know, brilliant. So I know we're close on time here. I have a couple more yeah. questions for you. Sure. One is what's next? You know, you've you've gotten groundswell to this point. You just closed a big round on it. You've done pretty incredible things in your life. So what do you think is coming down the pike the next five, 10, 20, 50 years? Five, five 10 in years we're talking. I'm yeah. thinking I'm thinking yeah. in terms of yeah. weeks these days, but um welcome back to being a zero to one entrepreneur. Yeah, five five <laughs> to ten years. I mean, I think in I think that we're building a category at Groundswell. Um, nobody's doing what yeah. we're doing. And I, I think that the market would support this being a public company someday. So if we're talking five to 10 years, I, I hope that we're ringing the bell, you know, at the, at the, at the New York stock exchange. And I, you know, listen, I think the markets deserve a purpose-driven company like this that people can invest in. Yep. So I, you know, I, we're all sprinting towards that goal, you know, tw- 20, nice. 20, 25 years, man, I've, 
I've driven this this body like I stole it, so I just kind of hope I'm still around in 25 <laughs> years. It's maybe I take it public and then I start focusing on uh, you know my health and longevity. <laughs> Meditation. <laughs> Perfect. And last question for me: for someone trying to pursue their dreams, I mean, you went from obviously the football dream, military, building some incredible organizations. Someone just getting started. What's one piece of advice you wish you got or you did get? You think really set you up for success in all this. You know, I've been very fortunate that I've I've had a lot of incredible life experiences and mentors that have, have taught me a lot. I think, you know, one thing my dad always consistently drove home for me was, you know, you're gonna you're gonna think you're making all your life's plans, but the universe gets a vote. And, you know, you're gonna you're gonna be on a path and the the universe is gonna punch you in the face and you can either fall down or you can clench your jaw and keep walking. So I think that you know, listen, I think a lot of people look at this, some of the success I've had and they think I've led a pretty blessed life. And I, and I have, like I, I have, I'm, I love where I'm at. I've got a wonderful family. I make a good living, but it's been as much marred by tragedy and setbacks as anything else. Um, I just kept getting up. And I think that's what entrepreneurship is, man. It's you get knocked down, punched in the face, dragged around. It's just how are you going to respond? And then the last one, which is less of a pick me up is never confuse effort with results, right? So my, my football coach used to at, at, at Wisconsin used to scream that at me all the time because I wasn't that good, but I was a try hard guy, but trying hard doesn't matter. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's all about results. Yeah. So <laughs> I actually love that. Yeah. Never always, always, always resonated with me. Yeah. No, that definitely resonates. Well, Jake, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming on Hawk Talk. All right. Appreciate you for having me. Absolutely. Hawk Media is your outsourced CMO and marketing team. We'll dive into your business for free. Identify opportunities in your marketing strategy, then get you teamed up with individual experts, all month to month and a la carte. Whether you're looking for a Facebook advertiser, a web designer, or a fractional CMO, we can help you drive growth for your business. We've successfully grown over 2,500 brands, and we're here to help you too. No matter your goal, we've got you covered. To learn more, visit hawkmedia.com. That's hawk with an E, media.com. You've been listening to Hawk Talk. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening in Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give us a quick rating for the show. Just tap the number of stars you think this podcast deserves. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.